0: another episode of New Books in Islamic Studies. I'm your co-host, Jovena Xavier. In each new episode of New Books in Islamic Studies, we select a new book that has been published in the field, and we have a conversation with the author. In today's episode, we are joined by Professor Joseph Hill, who's an Associate Professor of Anthropology at the University of Burda in Canada. Wrapping Authority, Women Islamic Leaders in the Sufi Movement in Dark Karsan and Gaul, is an ethnographic study of women Sufi leaders in the Talibay Bay, or Fauda branch of the Tajaniyah. Hill provides life stories of various fascinating and powerful female makadamas or Sufi leaders in Darkar and explores how they navigate the complexity of their gendered authority in religious, familial, and public domains. The book examines the ambiguity of female religious leadership and its manifestation through piety and performance, be it through cooking, motherhood, or the use of a female voice. Hill frames these pious actions to the semiotic acts of rapping as opposed to wailing, as it provides a more expansive analytical framework for his project. This book will be of interest to those who work on gender and women Islam, as well as those who engage contemporary Sufism, West African Islam, and anthropology of Islam. And so without further ado, here's my conversation with Joseph Hill. Hi, thank you so much for joining us today. Hi, thanks for inviting me. Um, So you are the author of Wrapping Authority, Women Islamic Leaders in Sufi Movement in Dakar, Senegal. Um, Mm -hmm. So I'm really excited to have you on the show today. Um, And as is tradition in new books in Islamic studies, I wondered if you could start off by telling us something about your intellectual journey and what led to the writing of this book.
1: I have been researching this community, the Faida Tijaniya community is how they like to refer to themselves um, in Arabic anyway. Um, since about and since 2001 when I was doing my PhD research. And my, when I first went to Senegal, I wasn't really interested in Islam or Sufism. I knew very little about both topics. And I was really interested in music. So I went and I studied a bunch of musical instruments. I learned to play the kora, which is this large, uh, they call it a harp lute. Uh, I learned to play the halam, which is a banjo kind of instrument because I play the guitar. And, uh, so, and I learned how to play the sabbat drum. Uh, and the Riti, of violin. So I was very much interested in music at that time. But as I was researching, and that was, I first went in 1998. That was when I first went to Senegal. I was an undergraduate doing my honors thesis. I decided to do an honors thesis on African music, traditional music. But as I continued in Senegal, I, as, as interested as I was in music, I realized that the people around me, most of the people who are not specialists in music necessarily, um, they might be interested in music. They might put it on at big events or whatever but what they were really interested in talking about was islam they were really interested in talking about uh, especially the what we would call an outsider might call it, uh sufi groups all so they didn't they didn't really use this term themselves uh they were very interested in their sheikhs and the the spiritual status of their sheikhs and whose sheikh was the most important sheikh and uh, kind of there were a lot of rivalries between different groups in senegal and i found out that you know i was as, as an undergraduate that 90% of Senegalese people are parts of some, are part of some kind of Sufi order 95% are are Muslims and so i just became fascinated with the culture of sufism i wasn't so interested in kind of the as a belief system or uh as the, i, I was really more more interested in sufism as it contributed to popular culture as it contributed to local culture and identity um i was interested in the the night chant meetings that people did, I found the chanting to be fascinating because as a musical person, I was interested in the chanting. And so this just kind of it it kind of grabbed me and drew me in. So when I applied to um a PhD program, uh I at first actually my applications, I said I was going to continue my my research on Brio musicians, uh, who are the traditional musicians in Senegal. But as soon as I started my graduate program, I immediately switched from studying music the thing that had been really just kind of consuming my curiosity, which was these Islamic groups. So when I went back to Senegal in 2001, I decided to choose a group that was, that I at the time thought was a relatively obscure group because you didn't see them on the national scene so much. What you really saw was the Murids, the followers of Ahmed Ubamba, and you also saw the Tijani followers of Haji Malik Si, who was based in the city of Tiwawan. and I didn't see the followers of Ibrahim Nias so much in the in the on the national scene, and so I kind of thought, well, I will, in the interest of fair representation, I'll choose one of the groups that's less represented, and I'll study them. And uh, and it turned out that I was really quite ignorant about the topic when I chose it as a as a topic because it turned out that this was the by far the largest Tijani group in the world. It just didn't happen to be all that represented in Senegal, and uh, so it was almost it was mostly through. To be honest, the ending up where I ended up doing my research for the last almost 20 years, it was, um, you know, I'd like to say it was part of a large master plan, but it was mostly just me kind of stumbling around in the dark that led me to this topic. And it's kind of the same thing that led me to study women. When I went to Senegal in 2001, I had no idea, as I explain in the book, I had no idea there was such a thing as a Sufi woman leader in Senegal. Uh, because I'd read a number of books and and uh, studies of of uh, these leaders in Senegal, Islamic leaders in Senegal, and they all mentioned men. It turned out that a few, that there were a couple things that mentioned one woman leader, uh, but for the most part, th- that was kind of it was an anomaly. They didn't talk about women. So I was surprised when when I went to Senegal during my first week in Medina Bay, the center of the Faiditijania. I was surprised when my research assistant, uh, when I was drafting a list of people I wanted to interview of notable religious personalities in the area. Um, I was surprised that one of the first names he mentioned was a woman. And I said, really? There's a woman religious leader? And he just kind of acted normal about it. And uh, he said, yeah, you know, if you want to go talk to her, she's just around the corner. The reason why her name came up was because she was kind of a neighbor of where I was staying. So I went and talked to her and, and uh and it turned out there were there were more as we asked around there were more women i didn't really focus on that on my uh in my dissertation my dissertation was much more about the broader themes of knowledge and authority in sufi islam in senegal <clears throat> it was uh it was later that i just started to say as i whenever i mentioned these women leaders people were very interested and people were surprised and i said you know there's there's so little literature about this maybe i'll write a small article about this, maybe a 10 page article. I have enough information for, I'm not really a, at the time, you know, I wasn't really a gender expert. I wasn't somebody who was personally uh, interested in gender that much. I just said, you know, the literature doesn't really talk about women uh, leaders. Um, they exist. Nobody's mentioned that. So maybe I'll just write a 10 page article based on the interviews that I had done with uh, about three or four women leaders. So I started writing and I started presenting, you know, I, I presented a conference paper on it and people, and people started contributing things back to me saying, well, look at the longer Sufi tradition, not just in Senegal. Look at other countries. There's Nana Asimaru in Nigeria. There's this and that. And I just started to realize that this was a huge topic that very few people were talking about at the time. And it was around 2009 when I I decided that I'm going to turn this into a book, not just an article. So I wrote up a Uh, prospectus and I started chopping it around. I hadn't really written all that much. I just, you know, it just kind of expanded. But um, by a year or two later, uh, my material had expanded beyond one book and I was looking at two books. So I have another book I'm working on uh, also on the same, on a similar topic about gender and Islamic authority, but much broader uh, than what's presented in this book. So it was kind of, you know, one thing leading to another that led me to have an interest in gender and women in Islam. And, and since then it's become, uh, as you can see, one of my primary occupation, preoccupations uh, academically.
0: Yeah, um, and it certainly is. And then one of the things I was curious about, because ultimately, um, this book, this particular book is an ethnographic study. In your introduction, you do speak a lot about kind of your own um, location as a researcher, and you're navigating points of accessibility and non-accessibility as a male researcher. So I wonder if you could share some of that methodological process, which you've alluded to already, Um, but in terms of um, how the interviews went or um, the people who you were working with.
1: Yeah, so you know when I present this research, a lot of people I talk to are very surprised that a man like me had access to study women. Some people are even skeptical, because if you look at the literature, the vast majority of things written on women in Islam are by women, which is kind of, um, you know, a lot of the women who study women in Islam, they told me they didn't go to study women in Islam. They went to study broader Islamic themes, but... Uh, they were kind of shunted into spaces in which women are living. When they went to talk to the men, they just kind of naturally, you know, because of the way things work in a lot of Muslim communities, they they end up getting, uh, you know, people to say, "Well, go talk, you know, hang out with the women while they're chopping onions." And so the women end up learning a lot about the way households function and women uh, women's interests and things like that. And uh, for me, it was very different. People would mention women, but it was one thing that kind of surprised me and and that a lot of people find a little bit incredible is that I had very little problems interviewing women. Um, as soon as I expressed an interest in interviewing women, I could go and I could sit with her as long as I wanted. A lot of my interviews went three, four hours. I would come back the next week and interview her again. I'd never found anyone, any of these women leaders who were uh, hesitant at all, who were skeptical. I never had a problem assessing women and talking to them. Um, I think what and one thing I acknowledge in my preface is that uh, me being a man, um, my being a man didn't necessarily limit my access to interviewing women, but I think it did change the perspective of this book uh, significantly. And, and I think this book is a very different book from what we would have had if we had had a woman uh, researching it. Uh, and that's because for me to hang out with women, it wasn't a hard thing to do. But it was definitely something I had to go out of my way to do. I had to tell people. I had to tell my research assistants, uh, I want to go interview women. Find me some more women to interview men. I would just go out and hang out, and then, and I would naturally hang out with men and learn their perspectives. I didn't have to go out of my, out of my way to get, learn men's perspectives. I did have to go out of my way to learn women's perspectives. So there's a lot less in this book if you compare it to what other people have written about women, West African women, uh, Muslim women you find that there's a lot less about household economics about uh marriage and divorce about the the uh, about fertility uh, a lot of the issues that really deeply interest most women in West Africa what you find is much more an emphasis on women's public performance of authority how do they account for themselves um explicitly and discursively uh, Because this is what the interviews were focused on. I would say, "Tell me your life story," and they would themselves select which aspects of the life stories to tell me. They wouldn't talk much about and I do have a chapter in here about cooking, but it's very much about how do they present cooking as an important part of their leadership um and how what did i what did I observe when I went to large meetings about cooking, but it's a lot less about some of the nuts and bolts about cooking that you find in some of the other works, so it is a very different perspective, but I didn't have any problem accessing women. Uh, as far as interviewing went, the, Senegal is a place that, compared to a lot of parts of the Muslim world, it's uh, the l- level of segregation is relatively low. Any man can visit any woman anytime they want, as long as it's under certain conditions. I mean, you can't necessarily go and sit privately with a woman without anybody there, but you know, these these women themselves are used to having young men around them all the time. So when I was doing an interview, it was extremely rare that I would do an interview one-on-one with a woman. I would do an interview in her living room or occasionally in her bedroom, because a lot of religious leaders, men and women, receive people in their bedrooms. And uh, there would be people coming and going, people sitting. At the same time that I was interviewing, people would be coming and asking for spiritual instruction. And she would shift her interest from me to the people, other people present. So it, so they were very used to being surrounded by, uh, by men. So it was nothing out of the ordinary that I would go and ask them questions. And they were very honored by the idea that I was there to write a book uh, about them. So it was really that it wasn't a problem, but it definitely did change. Uh, being a man definitely changed the the direction of the the emphasis of the book.
0: Because it's fascinating because when I've worked in, in Sri Lanka, I've often been, it's been the opposite where, I've, as you said, I get pushed towards the women's spaces, which is interesting because as a female researcher, you're kind of, that's the space that you occupy where it's. Harder to, I guess, transgress or enter into male-dominated spaces. So it does these really fascinating questions of accessibility and what stories you do get to tell, right? And I think that dynamic in this book is um, very interesting to me.
1: Mm-hmm. And can I can I add something to this this question of women and men and spaces? Um, you know, the question often comes up as I'm talking to people about my research. Some people, when I when I give these women as, ex, as examples of women who are doing things that men have traditionally done. Now, some people have told me, uh, yeah, but that's because they're, they've been admitted into the space of being honorary men. And sometimes researchers get admitted into that space. So we have researchers who sometimes will be admitted into the spaces that are really only occupied by, uh, as far as locals go, by men. But women are admitted because they're foreigners, they have a PhD, or they're, you know, they're from a university. And some people say that they they be, get treated as honorary men. But I think if you look at it, one thing I say in this book is – um it very well may, may be that there's no such thing as an honor, honorary man. I think people become honorary men in some respects for a certain amount of time. But in the end, men are men and women are women. And the, the working title of my second book is Women Who Are Men. And this is a paradox. And I think a lot of people are going to mistake what the book is really about. By the, I, I, I might change it for that reason. But um, but it's about this idea that women never actually get they, – they speak of themselves in the Sufi tradition as men. But they never actually get treated by men 100%. Uh, so there's no such thing as a woman who is really in every respect socially spiritually uh a man considered a man and and just you know has the same social existence as a man there are women who overcome certain aspects of, of femininity uh in cer- certain respects and there's and but they also will use femininity so that i mean overcoming in this sense is that there are some limitations to being a woman but there are some advantages i talk about In my book. So and I think as a foreign researcher, as as somebody who is doing research that you might have been treated as an honorary man, or in in some circumstances, but then once things kind of go back to their everyday, uh, you know, in your everyday existence, you in many ways are going to be a woman as well. So that's going to affect you no matter what, there's no such thing as transcending gender.
0: Yeah, and I think that's, that's precisely the, the, the dynamic or the ambiguity that you're trying to raise in terms of discussing performance or how these women perform certain um, realities of piety or spirituality. Um, and, but before we just get to there, so I am kind of wanting to set up the landscape or the religious landscape. Um, I- the Sufi community of the Tajaniya movement and the, um, the Fada are they a, a branch within this movement? I'm wondering broadly in terms of where they you could situate them in the context of West African Islam or just broadly just um, West African religiosity um, for perhaps listeners who don't know that landscape too much.
1: Yeah, sure. So the Tijani um, Sufi tariqa was founded by a man ch- named... Sheikh Ahmed Tijani, who was born in a town or in a village uh in Algeria called Ain Mahdi, and uh he moved eventually to the city of Fez in Morocco where he's buried now. And um he he got a certain number of followers around him but in in Morocco, but um during his lifetime he he got several followers who were from Mauritania, uh from sub-Saharan Africa. Um, and they spread his, fa- his teachings and his his, weird, his his tariqa to sub-Saharan Africa. So it became really, um, for about, you know, uh, over a century, the, the Tijani tariqa was, uh, was very, very heavily uh, West African tariqa. Even though it was founded in uh, Morocco, it became uh, very much associated with West Africa, to the point that today when I go to Morocco, I've heard tour guides that just a couple of months ago, I was in in his burial place, the Zawiya of, of Sheikh Ahmed Tijani in, in Fez. And I heard a tour guide going by talking to some tourists in French saying, um, this is the burial place of Sheikh Ahmed Tijani, who was an African. And by African, they mean some Saharan African. <laughs> African man who was traveling through Morocco and died here. So they buried him. So they're, they're kind of describing him as a, a black African. And then he said that um, he occupies such an important place that West Africans think that this place is more important than Mecca. So they come here on pilgrimage instead of Mecca. Of course, this is completely false. Tijanis are Muslims. They perform the pilgrimage, but they also, uh, many of them will go to uh, to Fez as well to visit his grave because he's a very important figure for them. Uh, but that's kind of the association that it got over the years that uh, that this is an African a West African torika specifically. And uh, if you were to count the numbers of Tijanis in the world, the vast majority would be, like I said, originally in West Africa, Senegal, especially Nigeria, uh, Northern Nigeria. There were a lot in Northern Nigeria and um it was only so the faida began it was founded by sheikh ibrahim ibrahim Yass, who was born in 1900 and around the the dates sometimes are a little bit hazy about when uh he actually met uh certain figures but then went to nigeria but the the most instrumental event in his life uh, the thing that really changed things uh for his global reputation was when he went on his his pilgrimage in 1937 to mecca and in Medina as well, where the Prophet Muhammad is buried. And he met the emir, or the uh, the ruler of Kano of, in northern Nigeria, a very, very important se- center of Islamic learning and scholarship and trade in northern Nigeria. And uh, the emir of Kano became convinced that Sheikh Ibrahim was the spiritual leader he was looking for. Now, up until that point, Sheikh Ibrahim, he had, he had announced, he had founded this Faida community, in the Tijani. And Faida means flood. It's an Arabic word that means flood or inundation, overflowing, abundance. And uh, it was something that was um, kind of cryptically predicted by the founder of the Tijani order, Shia Ahmed, Ahmed Tijani. He had said that at a, at a time of extreme hardship, there would come among his followers a Faida, uh, a flood, an in, uh, a fusion of, of divine knowledge. And that the, uh, the Tariqah would then spread and uh, afwaja mean, meaning it would go from, you know, groups and groups and groups of people would enter as groups, not just one, two, three, but a whole group of millions of people would enter the, uh, the tariqa. So a lot of people had been actually discussing who would be the bringer of the spider, And several people had claimed that status before Sheikh Ibrahim. And so he claimed that status around 1929 openly in Senegal. And he and a number of people had come to him. But at that point in Senegal, he was still kind of he was a young guy. He was only around 30 years old at that time. He was not really a big figure. And uh, he had gotten the the adherence of a number of uh, the younger members of Mauritanian uh, families, and the Mauritanians were the ones who brought the Tijaniya. So this brought him a lot of prestige. That it was the junior members of these families, but they were members of the main families of of the Tijani families in Mauritania. So he had a certain reputation in some quarters, um, but his followership was relatively small. But this changed after his pilgrimage in 1937, when the Emir of Kano came, and it was later when he visited Kano that. Uh, that he got the adherence of many, many people. And then after that, literally millions of people in the 1940s. By the late 1940s, millions of Nigerians had been his followers. He was the main Tijani leader in northern Nigeria. So it's kind of paradoxically within Senegal, a lot of people don't even know that Syed Ibrahim's followers are Tijanis. Because when you say Tijanis, you're talking in Senegal about people from Tiwawan followers at Hajj They call them the Nyasens. People think that Nyasen is a separate tariqa because they just don't understand This whole history. So in Senegal, they're very widely misunderstood. At least they were up until around 2000 when they exploded within Senegal. But up until then, they were very marginalized. Um, But even though they were very misunderstood and marginal within Senegal, in Nigeria, they had become the dominant uh, Tijani group, and then they spread from Nigeria to other West African countries. So in most of the of West Africa, when you say Tijani, you're talking about followers of Sheikh Ibrahim Yas. Except for in his own country of Senegal, where you're usually talking about other groups when you say Tijani. And you have to say Nya or Faida when you're talking, or Talibay which means followers of Sheikh Ibrahim, when you're talking about his followers. So worldwide, and then it was, uh, you know, they became the dominant branch of the Tijani um, group. Not only they became the dominant branch, but it was through this branch of the Tijania that the Tijania spread throughout the world and from Nigeria to other West African countries. And uh, a big role in this spreading was played by his grand, Sheikh Ibrahim's grandson, uh, Sheikh Hassan Sise, who passed away in 2008. He was assigned to represent the group in, in in the United States, and he got a lot of American followers and then spread from there to uh, other countries. Uh, and then there are a number of leaders now who have a uh, global following. So it's become a very global. Uh, Movement. Although my book doesn't really focus on the global aspect because really it's focused on ethnographic work within Senegal. But that's kind of the landscape of the Tijaniya. And now my research is is focusing a bit more on the global aspect uh, than it did originally.
0: Yeah, because you do several times and even with speaking with some of the the female leaders, um, the connections to the transnational, particularly to Europe and North America or in Canada to Montreal is quite fascinating. And so I was curious about that um and one of the other things i really enjoyed was the popular popular culture element especially with hip-hop and music right um you are saying now i have a sense of why you are also interested in it because you're coming from a music background but in terms of the uh, dominance of this group you see that a lot, a lot of um, urban youth were gravitating towards movement and that's mainly through pop culture as well
1: yeah and sometimes i joke with people i'm only half joking but i'm mostly joking uh that my that my um third book, hopefully. Um, we'll, um, you know, I'm, I'm working on another book on, on hip hop and I'm thinking that it would be, it would be a funny thing to call it rapping authority to just take off the W. But I think that might be our, that might be a little bit too confusing for people, but, um, but it's very funny that I've gone from this idea of rapping, which is the central kind of semiotic concept, conceptual idea in this book to rapping more recently I've interviewed dozens of rappers. Uh, about their role in spreading the Fight the Tijaniya movement among young people. Because it's been, since its beginning, it's been, uh, this is what differentiates it from many other branches of the Tijaniya that I've looked at, that I've visited. Usually when you go to Tijaniya meetings in most countries, the people sitting in the meeting are mostly above the age of 50 or 60. But you go to Fight the Tijaniya movements, uh, uh, meetings, and uh, the vast majority of people there will be between the ages of 15 and 25, maybe 30 Uh, And it's been like that since the very beginning, since Sheikh Ibrahim founded the movement when he was around 30 himself, and most of his followers were under his age. So it's been a very big uh, youth movement.
0: Mm Mm-hmm. Um, And so within the Faida movement, um, I guess the main pivot of the book is that you're engaging with the the new female leaders or the new makaramas, and you kind of um, are uh, pointing to the two distinctive or what you see as the two distinctive differentiations with what's happening within this movement that may be different from other, maybe female authorities that we've seen in other studies. So did you want to walk us through that? And I think that then leads us to the semiotic that you're talking about, which is rapping, Um, not rapping music, but rap. In terms of locally you know, wrapping something around your body, mm-hmm.
1: yeah. So the this book, because I had a lot of data about women in different times and places, and women who are, for example, sons of uh, daughters of Sheikh Ibrahim, who will also describe themselves as sons because this whole metaphor of women as men. Um, this book, I decided just for the sake of narrowing it down, um, to focus on a particular category of women who I call the new mukaddimas. Because there have been, since the early 1800s at least, there have been women who have been appointed as muqaddams, or representatives of the order, who have had the authority to transmit the, uh, the litanies of the order. Um, but it's only since around the year 2000, in usually urban contexts, that we've seen women openly acting publicly, because very often they would, they would act Quietly, without really people knowing, without public recognition. It's since around 2000 that women, first of all, the women have been publicly leading men and women, so not just women. So in the past, people like Nana Asmau, who's the most famous uh, uh, woman leader in West African history, she lived in the early 19th century. She was the daughter of Usman Dan Podio, the founder of the Sokoto uh, Caliphate. She was assigned to be. To represent her father essentially to the women the female population and she would go to women's houses and she would train people to women to go to women's houses especially new muslim women to teach them their religion because they thought it was very important to teach women their religion so they could pray and teach their own children uh, but that was the pattern that was very much followed in northern nigeria there were that led to a whole history of women scholars and women teachers who would who would work within segregated women's spaces to teach women so part of uh, part of the idea of giving women religious authority was so you could maintain segregation, so that women, so that women wouldn't have to go visit a man to get instruction, so they could go and visit women. Uh, whereas in Senegal, this pattern that I was seeing was very different. You saw women being in mixed gender spaces, being the leaders and the teachers of men and women, being in pretty close quarters to men and women, although maintaining a, a respectful distance uh, physically from their male followers. So that was one main thing that that I saw that these were these were women that were that were leaders openly of men and women. Um, and then the other dynamic that I saw that was very different was that these women, although some of them would say, you know, my grandfather was a Quranic teacher or whatever, none of them inherited their position from either a father or a husband. Um, there's one example I talk about in this book of somebody whose husband is a religious leader, but she's, I talk about her as marginally a new Muqaddimah because she's playing a different role in the last chapter of the book. But the the people who are squarely new Muqaddimahs are women who became disciples uh usually through some kind of vision visionary experience at least this is how they describe it i'm talking about their narratives. uh you know they became disciples they were led to be disciples of Sheikh Ibrahim and through some other muqaddam who would give them the the Tijani uh, order and the tarbiyah the spiritual education and then they would be recognized as being outstanding disciples and some male leader would give them an ijazah or a, a an appointment as a representative of the order of the tariqa and they would become leaders in their own right and it was all through their uh, kind of their own merits as as followers, not through inheriting some kind of mantle from their father. In many cases, like the other one case of a Senegalese woman that has been discussed in the literature was a Murid woman named uh, Sohan Magadjop, who came to occupy this position because her father died and and didn't have any sons. And so who, because the inheritance is such an important thing, it had to be one of his children who took his, his mantle, so it went to his daughter and they described her as somebody who was playing the role of a man. Uh, but in this case, it wasn't the case here that they inherited from their father. They were all people who mostly were not Talibabai to be born with. They were from other Sufi groups. Their families followed other leaders, and they became leaders in their own right, and they became disciples and then leaders.
0: Um, and I have to say one of the things I did love about the book are the, you know, I don't know if you'd call them moral histories, but merely the stories that you do tell of the women, especially in this chapter, um, you chronicle um different women throughout the book, but in, um, I think in the, um, the new Makadamas chapter, you chronicle three. And I wonder if there's any that you'd want to share at the moment or like a particular story that stood out in terms of the, the, the females that you are chronicling in terms of the type of authority they're maintaining, um, how they're doing it.
1: Yeah, sure. So yeah, the, originally this chapter I had, Eight, I profiled eight women and then people read it and they said that it was a little too confusing to have too many women in the same chapter. So I narrowed it down to three who I thought um, represented uh, very distinctive kind of life stories and histories. Um, so I talk about uh, Seyda Busodrame. Um I talk about, um, and she who lives on the far outskirts of Dakar in the, a relatively marginal um, area, although she told me just this year that she's planning to move because they're Going to turn her area into a big catchment basin so she's gonna have to move to a different neighborhood which she's she's okay with um so this is a kind of you know people who are living in these marginal areas where they can kind of kick you out whenever they want um and she's a very interesting character uh because she doesn't have much formal education none of these women really have you know none of them have studied at at al-azhar like the male major male leaders in in cairo Uh, none of them have a dis uh, an, uh, an extended classical islamic education All of them have studied the Quran. Pretty much every child in Senegal, every Muslim child, boy or girl, studies the Quran to a certain degree. That's not really distinctive of them because everybody does. Um, But none of them have studied. Usually to become a religious leader, you'd have to study past the Quran. You'd have to study fiqh or or Islamic jurisprudence. You'd have to study some of the other topics and then have a long spiritual uh, apprenticeship with a leader. And none of them really have that. Um, But... Because she is very much a curious person herself, she's sought out le- uh, learning herself. She's gone to various teachers. Her family has employed, when she was younger, employed teachers to teach in her house. And now she employs Quranic teachers to teach the Quran in her house to other people. Um, so she's, when you hear her talk, she sounds like somebody who's read quite widely. Uh, and, uh, but it's all through informal education. Um, contrast that to another woman I talk about here, um, Khadifal who has, I believe, five post, uh, post-secondary you know, university diplomas, um, was a government minister at some point, uh, has for many years been a senior member of the, uh, the education ministry in Senegal, a very prominent member of society, much, much more known, and also the author of many books on uh, German literature. Uh, much more known as a German professor at the university and a government uh, education uh, education official than for as a spiritual guide uh, but around two thousand i'm i'm blanking on some of the years, but she was appointed as a as a representative of the chijani order and she came to have disciples her own disciples and so now she has a circle of disciples that meets in her house, several of them gone to live in uh, in europe uh so that's a you know very contrasting. She also did not have much um, formal Islamic education. her education is all uh in French and german um, and uh and then the the third person I talk about in this chapter is the one who is on the cover of the book uh um who is her own kind of uh model of of uh, of leadership she um her work is that she is a kind of a, you could say a spirit medium. She uses her spirit medium, uh, gifts to give people advice, to tell them, uh, what's causing their problems. Um, and this is, this is something that is, she considers a separate work from her spiritual. So her, uh, her Sufi leadership, uh, because this is her kind of her private uh, job that she gets money from, but her Sufi leadership, she doesn't have an income from, she just, you're not supposed to make an income from it. Um, and she, but it definitely p- plays into her authority because it it helps her with her kind of era of mystique that she has a spiritual connection to the other world, and she's become herself quite a uh, quite a prominent uh, leader in her uh, neighborhood of Sikab uh, in in Dakar. So, um, and then I talk about a number of other leaders in this in this book. Who uh, another very interesting one is Musokoro uh, Mai, who uh, I talk about in two subsequent chapters who I first had in this chapter, and then I moved her just because I talked about her enough in the other chapters. I didn't need to repeat it in that uh, chapter. But she's also one of these people who's very prominent outside of the Sufi, her Sufi activities. She has a large corporation, a large company uh, that, that imports and markets uh, skin care products and hair care products. And she started in the clothing business, and then she did this hair care products, of things that are made in Côte d'Ivoire. And, uh, and she's done very well for herself, MashaAllah um but in addition to that she has her so most of these women uh have other occupations aside from being a spiritual guide uh so this is something they kind of do on the side of their normal their their ocu- other other occupation which kind of goes against the idea that women Muslim women don't work because all these women have you could say two jobs they have their spiritual job and they have their their uh money job although some of them are pretty much housewives or whatever they don't really have uh, uh Another economic source of income, Uh, like Aida Cham is another one who who mostly uh, just devotes her life to uh, spiritual endeavors, but she is also living in the kind of outskirts of of, uh, Dakar in a more marginal area and is kind of struggling to get by she's also become very prominent in her area as a, as somebody who's known as a, a youth leader and a, an a organizer of the fight, the community. So,
0: so the second half of the book really is engaging with these women's lives and experiences and really around performance. So you kind of go into the spirit of cooking, the spirit of how they're engaging with motherhood, um, the voice, um, kind of the politics around women's voices. And all of this is centered around this question that you're kind of grappling with in terms of, performance of piety and the gender dynamics that are associated with, and you're building it or constructing it around this notion of wrapping. Um, so I wonder if you could uh, walk us through that and why you're interested in wrapping what you're trying to subvert and using wrapping particular and particularly in kind of positioning it against the veil. Um, and why I think it's so interesting in the context of Sufism, because there's like a really mystical component to the veil as well, which I was really fascinated about how you um, tie that together. So
1: yeah. Yeah. So first to talk about the idea of wrapping. Um, yeah, there's, I decided to make that the central idea of the book because yeah, it challenges the way we've been talking about Muslim women for a long time. Um, uh, because if you look at the, the literature on Muslim women for the last, well, I was going to say a couple of decades, but probably ever since Orientalists started talking about the Middle East, um, the veiled Muslim women is the central kind of image. And a lot, And some people have seen my title and misconstrued it, um, which is not their fault. But uh, they thought I was just talking about veiling again. It's another book about veiling. And in Senegal, veiling is not such a huge issue. Most women don't really – even the Sufi women don't necessarily veil in the sense that we think of using the, the kind of the what they know as the reformist veil. They do dress modestly uh, by their own standards. But even members of this particular Sufi group, they don't necessarily – um, cover their heads all the time, um, not all of them anyway. So the point is not to say, oh, well, let's look at my veiled Muslim women again. The point is to say that there is, even among women who don't necessarily veil uh, rigorously uh, in the way that the you know a lot of reformists would like them to veil, they're exercising some kind of what I would call self-wrapping. And the reason why I choose the word wrapping instead of veiling is that veiling really is a negative action it's all it 's about concealing it 's about hiding uh, it's about what what are you not showing and another thing about veiling is that because it has such a long history of being associated with women that it kind of cuts the idea of veiling off from the many other areas in which the same logic is applying. So I use wrapping as a semiotic concept. in other words, i'm interested in what does it mean to wrap something? Um, and so in the chapter on wrapping, I go into the many, many meanings of and, and uses of wrapping in our societies, in the West, in, in various Muslim contexts to show that wrapping, of course, has many different uh, connotations. Wrapping can be used to protect something, uh, to keep it from getting scuffed up. It can be used to, to hide it, to keep people from knowing that you have something valuable. So if you're walking around with diamonds and, and gold, you might want to show it off. But you also might, if you're in an area where it might get ripped off, you probably want to. Hide it. You want to wrap it up. Uh, So it can be a protective measure. It can also be a way of presenting something as valuable, which is what you would do with, uh, like, a birthday present. Uh, It adds to the value, it adds to the mystique of it because it's, you know, you get the present, it makes you more excited to get it if it's wrapped up because it makes you wonder what's in there. And so all of these things actually come to play when we're talking about the so called veil or the wrapper. In some cultures, they actually, like in Mauritania, the, the, the women's covering is called a wrapper. It's the thing that wraps them. They don't call it a veil or a hider. They call it a wrapper. And a wrapper is something that conceals, presents, protects, um, embellishes, uh, misleads. You can mislead by putting the wrong wrapper on something. Um, you can overestimate, underestimate. It, it does a, a number of functions. And, and women's uh, bodily covering can play all of those functions. Functions, And it can suggest protection. So when a woman, a lot of people told me, well, when they were talking about why is it why it is that women cover themselves. They said, well, would you rather have, when somebody brings you food in Senegal, when you present food, you present it with the cover on, and then you take the cover off when you're serving it. They said, would you rather that somebody bring you a plate that's been uncovered for a long time? And you don't know if the flies have gotten it, if other people have been picking at it, if it's how long it's been out, or would you rather they bring you one that's covered that, you know, nobody has been messing around with. Um, so that's, you know, this is, and we could have a long conversation about, uh, about that about what are the social implications of women messing around, people messing around with women. But the idea is that it's been protected and, and uh, preserved. Uh, so so uh, I extend this from physical wrapping of the body to say that actually this, the, the wrapper is a semiotic. Uh, it's a sign of things that it, it can be a sign that is not physical, not about um, clothing, but about many other things. So your voice can be wrapped. So, just to give the examples that I talk about in chapter six on the wrapped the voice, um, people say the women's voice is aura. Uh, in other words, people say aura is something that needs to be protected, covered, not to be shown publicly. So, the body is aura. So, they say that your aura is the part of your body that should not, not be shown. And for women, in traditional fiqh, that's the face and the hands. For men, it's a bit more extensive than that. Uh, and then they say that the woman's voice is aura. In other words, the woman's voice is something that shouldn't be shown. Uh, you can hear a woman's voice, but, it, it, you know, there's this idea that it shouldn't be put out there for everyone to hear at the same time. It should be a bit more modestly presented quietly. And, and a lot of people see that as very sexist. And, of course, this can lead to women's exclusion from many spheres. But I talk about how in traditional Senegalese society, anyone who's who had a certain status uh, would want to veil their voice or wrap their voice. So, there was this category of people that we call griots in the, in the Western languages, Gewel and Wolof. And they were the rappers of the noble people. Uh, in other words, if the noble person wanted to announce something to somebody, they wouldn't go and tell that person. Or if you were at an assembly and there are a lot of people there, no microphones, in order for everyone to hear you, you had to really shout very loud. And uh, it was very undignified for people to do that. And so, you would employ a Gewel or, or, or anyone really of lower status. It could be a Gewel, it could be even a younger relative or uh, somebody who has a kind of client relationship to your family, and you would whisper to them what you want uh, the people to hear, and then they would uh, shout it out loud, maybe embellishing it themselves. So they're embellishing the way, same way that a rapper embellishes. So your voice can be rapped. Nowadays, a microphone can can play the role, role of the, um, the rap vo- vocal rapper because the microphone can allow you not to yell and to maintain your composure and dignity while reaching a large audience. YouTube can also be... A rapper in a, in a certain sense and there's some controversy about whether youtube is simply allowing you to be undignified in front of more people or whether youtube itself is a rapper because you're not physically present when you are presenting them uh, so they'll use this so women who are actually playing the role of of leaders or chat uh chant leaders uh, they will use all kinds of technological mediation in order to overcome the the traditional imposition that women shouldn't be out there yelling they also use the spiritual state as that as as the rapper to present themselves their voice as something other than their own voice if somebody asks them they'll say well it's not my voice it's the voice of ilham it's the voice of the kind of what's been uh inspired to them uh, they're in a different state they're in an altered state of consciousness which means and it's the same kind of uh explanation you get in spirit possession and things like that uh, it's not my agency that's doing it it's another agency that's doing it so that kind of creates another rapper or their there's the social role they're playing and so I talk about many ways in which people socially can be wrapped if you're if you're in if you're delegating your roles to other people delegating your representation to other people those people end up being your rapper so there, you can be socially wrapped vocally wrapped visibly uh, visually wrapped uh, through clothing and other uh, things and 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 one of the main uh, things I talk about here is that, that it can be connected to nobility so it can make you seem more noble by being wrapped so a lot in the West we tend to think that if your voice, is not directly heard then you must be disenfranchised in many cases that's true i'm not saying that no if you don't have a voice it doesn't matter i'm saying that there are certain contexts in which having your voice literally heard is actually actually lowers your status rather than uh, raising it so in traditional senegalese society that's the case and in sufism the rapper has a very deep uh function because the Sufi tradition presents God as somebody who is wrapped through 70,000 veils as something based on Hadith. that God is wrapped through 70,000 veils and that you can get closer to God through getting through those veils, penetrating those veils. And so God is, it's only something that's really the, the object of, of desire and longing and, and value that would be wrapped in such a way. And so women can present them, so can, women can actually connect themselves to the divine through the mystical knowledge, the wrapped knowledge, the the secret knowledge of Sufism, through presenting themselves as physically wrapped people. So there's, I talk about the the idea of the um, uh, the sign, this idea that comes from Charles Sanders Peirce, the, the idea that many many things that share the same quality, that quality can come to have a significance in itself because it, it connects you to many other things that have that that qualities of the quality of rapness connects you to mystical knowledge it connects you to nobility it connects you to many other valuable things that are also wrapped and so I talk about how it, it's all about the performative context I'm not saying this makes them more valuable I'm saying that it can be used in performances of authority to present themselves as more valuable and it's only successful in making them more valuable if the performance works if people actually so you can't it's not just about your performance it's about how people take up the performance how they un, in, interpret it. And how they value your performance. So it doesn't mean that anyone in any condition can wrap themselves and therefore have value. It's about in certain contexts, a certain performance of wrappedness can, can lead, it can contribute to your mystique or your value.
0: And you're, in your epilogue, you return to this in terms of asking the readers to think about what the consequence of thinking about this kind of performative approach, um, performative gendered approach entails for studying of not only Sufism, but also broadly Islam in terms of perhaps what scholars should do in how we, you know, approach Islam or approach um, discursive traditions in Islam. Mm-hmm.
1: Yeah. So I've, I've been very deeply influenced by the approach of Talal Asad and his idea of Islam as a discursive tradition. And I think this is really a very valuable way of thinking about if, if, if we want to delineate Islam as a field of study, I don't think you could do better than talking about Islam as a discursive tradition. By that, Talal Asad wrote in this very famous paper uh, uh, on the idea of Islam as a, uh, of an anthropology of Islam, um, he wrote that people had talked about Islam in many different ways. It's either an essence that's shared by all Muslims. It's many whatever Muslims want it to be because you know, we're cultural relativists, so everybody can define it in their own way. And uh, ultimately, and then there's a third option that it's really nothing. It's analytically nothing because it doesn't have any coherent meaning at all because it is used to refer to so many different things. It doesn't really mean anything. And, and Al Assad said, well, that that kind of – this idea that it either has to be an essence or it's nothing – is self-defeating, and it means that we can't have anything called Islamic studies. So he came up with this idea of Islam as a discursive tradition to to, to deal with that question, that that all, everything that calls itself Islam, everything that's identified Islam, has something in common, and that thing that it has in common is not an essence. It's that it all refers back to some history, um, some some claim to authoritatively representing this tradition of Islam, of representing the, the original text of Islam, the Quran and the Hadith, and... Um, and I would say even beyond Hadith, there's, you know, there's Sunnah beyond Hadith too. There's, there's a number of different kind of authoritative sources for Islam. Um, but where I find that this approach has, uh, you know, he said we should start with that. He didn't say Islam is that, and that is the ultimate definition of Islam. He said we should start with that when delineating the field of Islamic studies. And I think one problem is that when a lot of a lot of times when we've taken up this so-called definition of Islam, we've kind of privileged the discursive idea of Islam, and, and it's led to this kind of idea, and I'm not saying that the, Talal Asad is the one who's who's guilty of this, but it's just kind of this emphasis on discursive tradition has sometimes led us to think of Islam as something that's determined through discourse, something that it's a, it's a, ultimately a debate over uh, orthodoxy. Uh, and I think actually a lot of what passes as Islam, it's not about who makes the best argument or who who's referring to text. It's about who can perform in a way that is... Uh, that is then uh, kind of recognized as legitimate. And sometimes performances that are very different from what previously was known as an as authoritative or acceptable performance of Islam get to accept it without, be accepted without any kind of debate. And that was kind of the central question of this book. Wait a minute, all these women are acting as leaders in a place where women were generally understood as, by definition, excluded from leadership. And many people still uh, approach it that way. Suddenly, since 2000, they become leaders. And I haven't heard very much controversy over this. And there was no central discussion about should we now... Well, among certain groups, there has been in Senegal. But among the Faida people, there has not been a a discussion over whether women should be appointed as leaders. They just kind of came to be appointed and act publicly as leaders without any real discursive uh, debate over it, as as far as we can tell. And my my answer to the question of how that happened was it's through this idea of performance. And it's something I've called in some of my other publications uh, performative apologetics. In other words... Apologetics is the idea of making a case for the for the idea that your position is true. Um, I think people often make their case through their performance, through performing a certain kind of piety and then letting other people decide whether that piety flies as, as legitimate piety. And they might also, if you ask them, they might make a case for it discursively, but it's, the discursive case is not really what determines whether it gets accepted or not. Most people are not listening to the discursive case. Most people are watching what they're doing. Uh, So I think what what passes as good Islamic performance very often is determined very largely through non-discursive ways. And of course, discourse is always part of it. You can't exclude discourse. But I'm saying that ultimately it comes down to when I look at a performance of Islam, do I say, wait a minute, that doesn't look right? Or do I say, hmm, I would never thought about that, but I guess that works. It looks right to me. Those women are still acting very pious while they're doing this very non-traditional thing. So I guess that's okay. Um, and there's no debate over it. Nobody actually raised the question of, well, should women be doing that? They just kind of looked at it and said, well, they look like they're pretty proper women to me. So that's all right. And so what they're doing, and and so the way that I illustrate this through this book is I illustrate how these women are essentially, you've got a number of things that are considered the building blocks of good, pious, uh, womanhood. Um, like you mentioned, you've got, you've got cooking. Uh, there's nothing in the Quran or the Hadith that says women must stay home and cook. Uh, as far as I know, I've never heard of a hadith that says women, uh, should, uh, should do the cooking. Uh, there are, you know, there are cases where it references women, uh, cooking, but it doesn't, there's nothing in there that normatively says women need to be the ones who cook. But there's this understanding that women are associated with, there is a Quranic verse that says, your establish, uh, establish yourselves in your homes. Uh, which has been generalized to mean that women should be primarily in the house. They can go out. Uh, You know, some people say they can't go out, but the general understanding is that that's their, their main base of operation is the home uh, and raising children. And then who's going to do the cooking while you're there. You can either employ somebody, a servant to do it, or the woman's going to do it uh, because she's already there. So women have become very deeply associated with cooking and it's become a source of pride for them. So it's not something that they see as, Oh, you know, I'm, I'm only a servant doing this. Even women who are very rich who have lots of money uh, who don't need to cook, uh, they take pride in the fact that the food in their cook is in their house is done properly. Uh, and if they hire somebody else to do it, they're going to be looking over their shoulder to make sure it's done properly because if somebody complains about the food, they ultimately bear responsibility, not their husbands, not other men in the household. Uh, so women have, have come, been associated with that. They've been associated with, like I said, wrapping and being being wrapped up, being uh, also like uh, for example, um, being docile and submissive to your husband um, this is something that I say in the book that uh, of course it can be a, this the idea of being submissive to your husband can be a very marginalizing thing for women, of course uh, but if it 's part of a performance in which the viewer and the performer understand this performance as a performance of piety before God and not necessarily before the husband, then a woman can actually redefine a performance of piety toward her husband as a performance of piety toward God. Like if, if onlookers know that the man is actually in a sub, is in a less prominent position than his wife. Like she's a very important leader. He's just some no name guy. Um, if she's showing subservience before him, then it just that just actually emphasizes her humility and her spiritual connection to God and her piety. And uh, and the guy knows that he couldn't take advantage of that because she's the much more prominent person. So that performance of, of uh, subservience becomes, comes to have a very different uh, meaning. Of course, I'm not defending that women should be subservient. I'm just saying that it comes to have different meanings depending on the context, the performative context. So there are a number of different domains that they – oh, and then motherhood is maybe the central one in which – women are performing are performing uh, female piety and every uh, feminine piety and every woman that I talk to use mother, motherhood as a metaphor of spiritual leadership. And what's really striking about this is that you might think, oh yeah, well, you know, and, and people have told me this when I presented this. People have said, well, you know, in West Africa, uh, fictive kinship is important. So men describe themselves as father, women describe themselves as mother, no big deal. But actually, men's use of, Paternal metaphors is extremely limited. Uh, when men come to have a relationship to somebody, they often refer to them as uncle or something like that. Uh, but the the term by father is reserved for the founder of this community, Sheikh Ibrahim Nias. That's his main nickname, by father. Uh, but a household can have one father, but it can have several mothers uh, because of polygyny. Uh, so in the Faida community, women in general can define themselves as mothers in ways that men can't define themselves as fathers. And so spiritual transmission in this community... Is very rarely defined as a, a relationship, or not as often defined as a relationship of fatherhood between the person doing the transmitting and the and the disciple, because the disciple is understood to be a, a more a spiritual son or daughter of Sheik Ibrahim than the local makhdem who's giving them the uh, the um, giving them the spiritual training. But the women can use the the metaphor of motherhood uh, as a leadership metaphor. So it's so it shows that they're using those what's essentially in this. The way they're using it is very novel because such kinship metaphors have been used in the history of Sufism. I talk about this. They've been used in the history of Sufism quite a bit, but often to describe men's leadership. But it was very rare in the history of Sufism that you had women using maternal metaphors. Actually, most women who were Sufi figures avoided the idea of motherhood, they avoided marriage or they avoided the stigma or the kind of like biological implications of impurities of of women's reproduction. So they avoid any connection to motherhood, whereas members of this group, the women in this group, that's the central metaphor they're using all the time. Motherhood. So it becomes a huge part of their, their performance. Even women who d- don't have children or women whose children are all gone or women who are divorced. Uh, they all use this motherhood metaphor as part of the performance of piety. So, the, so so it's kind of like the, the, the elements of feminine piety are building blocks through which uh, you can build, what some people would describe as an oppressive relationship, but these women are showing how you can reconfigure those building blocks to build something very different. So it just shows that the, the indeterminate nature of using these the building blocks of feminine piety, uh, that, that it's all in the current performance and how they're being put together in this particular situation
0: and in many ways it's it seems to almost resonate with other studies of you know Sufi women either in classical context or in contemporary contexts where there is a negotiated reality of how they could embody or embody authority or embody their own locality as gendered beings right because there's a sense that Sufism allows for the transcendence of gender but there's also the social cultural reality in which one is physically existing in as well so i think the book um highlights that through these women's voices and examples how at times they affirm certain tendencies that may seem to perpetuate this binary, such as, you know, mother-father dynamics and other tendencies in which they're actually enacting agency and subverting, such as, you know, cooking that's taken on as a, a pious act that's significant to them, right? Um, there's so many jewels in the book that we won't be able to get to. So but um, hopefully um, readers can pick it up and um, uh, explore further. But as we conclude, do you want to give you hinted at already at some of the work that you're doing, but what else can we expect from you in the future?
1: So yeah, well there's a tradition in, in Islam and Sufism that you don't um you don't put all your cards out on the table. Even the, the sheikhs that I know, a lot of them, even if they know that they're inshallah traveling tomorrow, they won't tell anybody until they're getting on the plane and they'll say, Yeah, I might be going somewhere tomorrow and then they'll They'll go, so I feel a little bit, uh, so I I wonder if I should, but I, but it's, it's kind of a matter of public knowledge that, that, um, this, this book, and I say it in the introduction, this book is kind of, it's a subset of my, of my research on women. And, and, um, some people will be disappointed to learn that when they open this book that I didn't talk about the most prominent women leaders in Senegal, who are the, the the daughters of Sheikh Ibrahim himself. Uh, and that's because I was reserving and I've already written this material up and I went back and talked to some of them again. So I'm going to be updating it uh, based on things that I got this year, or this in the past year. Um, but I have a second book that kind of spun off of this. So it's kind of a two part project. And the second book, uh, instead of talking about the new Muqaddamas, it's talking about the longer tradition of women in, in Sufism and in Islam. And so in that book, that's where I'm planning to talk about the daughters of Sheikh Ibrahim who are who don't fit at the new mukaddama. Uh, label because a they're they're more classically trained they've memorized the Quran they've studied the disciplines Islamic disciplines they're the daughters of a major leader so that that makes them the more traditional model of women uh, Islamic figures uh, but I'm going to place them in the context context of the longer uh, tradition of Sufism so how do they fit in with people like Rabi al Adawiya and uh, Fatima of Nishapur and these other figures. And uh, Nana Asmao, of course, from northern Nigeria, the most the huge figure who's already been talked about by many scholars in, in West Africa. And uh, so I'm going to be talking about a lot of broader gender issues and uh, in, in Sufism. Uh, and then I have another project that I've published a bit on, which is uh, still the, the book project is still more in its nascent stages. But that's about hip hop and other forms of performance in Senegal again. And, and I've extended that research to look at London. So I've interviewed a lot of ra- Sufi rappers in London. Uh, who have become very good friends of mine, um, who are very prominent in the Tijani community over there. People like Rekina Yas, Muhammad Yahya, uh, Sakina Douglas, Monira Williams uh, in the London scene, um, and so there. And, and and the uh, and this kind of takes a different direction, gender-wise, because um, hip hop, as as everybody knows, is very deeply um, uh, uh, dominated by men, and it's a very masculine field. So when you have so all the all the all the rappers I interviewed in Senegal, with the exception of one, were men, because uh, I couldn't just couldn't find very many women uh, rappers. Uh, and in London, I interviewed some two female rappers who are known as the hip hop hijabis in London. Uh, and uh, you know, and they actually are a little bit against this 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 usage because it kind of again it re- it reduces them to women who wear the veil. Oh, there are women who wear the veil and hip and, and do hip hop. Isn't that novel? But that's, you know, there's been a documentary made on them called that Hip Hop hijabis. So I'm kind of extending that to the more international sphere. And I'm looking more at uh, Sufism and the faida in an international, you know, this transnational perspective. But the next book, yeah, inshallah, will be a, a continuation kind of of this gender gender theme, but in a broader sense.
0: That's all sounds very fascinating and actually very exciting. So I look forward to, to reading your future work. Thank you so much for joining us today. I really appreciate it.
1: Thanks for inviting me. I've enjoyed it.